welcome to the King Hero IndyCar Podcast with Kirby and Justin. Kirby, how are you? Uh, doing well, Justin. How about yourself? I'm uh, I'm excited, Kirby. Uh, interview time. Off-season well, interview time. Always spices things up. Uh, always fun to do. Yeah, I think so. And I, I and I'm really I, I don't know how many of our fans will relate to this guest in terms of like. People, uh, I mean, yeah. If if you're if you're not of our vintage, you might not have heard of Richie. Yeah. If you're not of a certain age, you don't. You probably don't even ever heard of him. But but he he was he was a deal. He was the real deal. Um, we're talking about Richie Hearn. He had a real team, Budweiser sponsored racing. I mean, um, a, a, you know, placed third in the Indy 500. Uh, and drove some of the real stuff. And um, I think it's a it's a he won an IRL race at the the inaugural race at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Right. So point being, um, and and one of the reasons I wanted to do this interview because I think it's it's good sometimes to talk to people that that you know aren't the Elio Castroneves of the world or the Dario Franchitti's or the Scott Dixon's, you know, because you you hear those interviews and you know their career and all that, but. This is like more real, I think, more gritty, more real, you know, guy, you know, not a lot of money struggling to get to where he got. And, you know, not everything went perfectly in his career, to, you know, but it's I think it's the more common tale in, in auto racing. And, and I think that's why I wanted to interview him. I think it's it's think just, of, uh, you know, in modern times, think of uh, Oliver Askew or uh, Carlos Munoz. Right. I mean. Guys had ability, uh, but couldn't quite find the right uh, break at the right time. Right, all that kind of stuff. And um, so, it's uh, I'm looking forward to talking to him. So, without further ado, here he is. Curb, uh, special guest today. Can you believe it? No, I can't believe it, but I'm really excited to talk to talk to him. Uh, none other than. The famous and infamous Richie Hearn. Well, I'm excited to be here. It's kind of fun to talk about all this stuff, and I don't get to do it much, but uh, I'm really interested in doing this. We're excited to have you. I think when you when you go and look back on your career, it's interesting, and I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about it because it's it's atypical in, in a way when you when you talk to some of these other IndyCar guys, you know, they have all this, you know, thing and, and your your career is, is a bit atypical. But at the same time, I think your story is probably told time and time again amongst other drivers. Right. Who maybe you haven't heard so much about or, or and, and, you know, it's just kind of the way racing is. And I'm interested in kind of getting stuck into that. I guess the first thing is, you know, we did a little research on you and uh and uh, we understand that uh, you were in the womb and racing. Is that uh, is that accurate? That is true. So, you know, ironically, my my parents, mostly mom and my dad, my mom, which is surprisingly, both raced Corvette. So um, they had like a '67 open cockpit race car with the roll cage, and my my dad would run. But my mom would also race the car, and, you know, SCCA back then had, like, a women's class. Um, and they would do – she wouldn't do the racing wheel-to-wheel, but she would do, like, the solo two events. And um, so I have uh, – I actually have a really cool picture of her racing the car with, like, a white helmet, open face, with, like, a pink scarf. She she literally raced 
you know, obviously things were a little bit liberal then, uh, raced until, uh, the seatbelts wouldn't fit anymore pregnant. So, um, yeah, so it's absolutely true. That's amazing. Uh, obviously a racing family. I mean, did you kind of grow up, uh, you know, watching people work in the garage on cars and that kind of thing? Are you handy in that way as well? Or tell us a little yes, bit about that. I, I really love working on cars and, you know, I'm kind of like more of the mechanical guy. So, you know, my dad, you know, it was just SCCA kind of club racing stuff, but you know, my dad did a lot of the, all the work himself. In fact, he even went to, uh, he even, I have some old like film of where he taped like little pieces of string all over the car and went out to like Willow Springs and had somebody film them so you can see the airflow <laughs> and everything. And, um, and then, then, you know, when I got older, older, meaning like seven years old, I got into go-karts naturally and, and I had to do all the work. You know, my dad would say, Hey, we're doing this, but do you want this? Do you want that? You got to work on it. And so I really kind of learned how to do, you know, all the mechanical stuff and get your hands dirty and, and, uh, get in there it's a little different nowadays. A lot of the, a lot of the kids nowadays are kind of, it's funny to watch, you know, they bring in these big trailers and they got mechanics and all this stuff. And, you know, back then it was father, son, and, you know, if I didn't do the work. We weren't racing. Also my grades, grades were important. You know, I really kind of did it the old school way and, and my dad passed away a long time ago, 10 years ago or so, but, um, you know, that, I think that carries on. So I'm really kind of into hands on. I, it's just kind of a fun thing for me. It is amazing. Uh, when you compare that to, I've been out at the track here locally a few times lately and they have like a, a cart race uh, going on, carting race going on and, They've got the full RV plus the full trailer behind it, a series yeah. of mechanics, and it's just – it's unbelievable, right? It's just such a – Yeah, it's it's so – and it's it's not in a bad way to say this, but it's so spoiled. Like I – you know, we would – my dad and I – my dad didn't have a lot of money, so, you know, we would go and we had like a little pickup truck and, you know, and we would literally put sleeping bags in the back of the bed and sleep at the track we didn't have an easy up. We had like a homemade tent and, and uh, it's funny to see you go to these big races and to see these kids and, and, and it's not in a bad way. It's just the way, the way it is. And uh, they're just kind of like, they have an engineer, they have a computer and it was really just so a little bit more raw back then. And, And I'm not saying this in a bad way, like, Oh, old guy type of stuff, but that's just the way it was. And, and you just kind of just learn the trade, I think, a little bit better that way. You obviously did well, and 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 uh, you know did well in the carding and so forth, and moved your way up. And I, th- I think we'll get into some of your earlier career stuff. But it's hard to talk, it's hard to read about you and talk about your career without you know getting to John Del Pena. And yep, uh, it just seems like he's so central in 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 kind of your career. Um, in, in many positive ways, I assume, and, and, and maybe in a not so positive way, uh, uh at, at times, but I, what can you tell us about, uh, John Del Pena? Yeah, well, John was, you know, was the guy that really believed in me. Um, so just to kind of backtrack a little bit, you know, I, I did race go-karts and I was, you know, without bragging, I, and when I was probably 17 or 18, I, I was legitimately probably the best carter in the country. At that point, I had moved on from my dad. A, a guy named Mike Manning had picked me up 
And um, he was the first one to really bring in, uh, back then it was called Cali Cart, but it's now CRG. And, you know, kind of really backed me. And we traveled the country. We went and just attacked everybody and just went and won national championships. And I was about 18 and, and kind of getting to that point where I was trying to move up into cars. And I didn't have any money. I had no backing and was able to win a competition to go race in France for a year in Formula Renault. And when I came back from that, I had nothing. I was like maybe 21, 22. I had nothing going on for me. My desire was to be a professional race car driver, and that's all I had been ever known. And you know, I remember my dad used to like say, "Hey, just believe in yourself and just do this." So I would, you know, bounce around, do a race here, a race there, just whatever I can do. And anyways, back in '93 at three, the Atlantic Series season, um, you know, John Delapena had an Atlantic team. They were looking for a driver for 1994, and through word of mouth, I got a chance to test with them and I went up to Sears Point and whatever it's called now, but it's still Sears Point to me. You know, I got a test with him. He was testing a bunch of drivers and I went to that test. I remember my dad just, you know, just telling me, Hey, you know, just believe in yourself. And I literally went there with either I was going to bin it or win it. And I ended up setting a track record on that track and that car, a car never driven before. And, you know, I, waited and waited and waited and finally you know john actually decided to pick me to run their atlantic team and that was the beginning of my career so you know really without him i would have just been some joe schmo working somewhere because i had nothing else going on and we ended up you know finishing second in the first year in the championship winning it the next year and the plan was to move the team up to IndyCar together, and, uh, you know, I was part of that plan, and, and the rest we kind of just did, and without him, there was no no Richie Hearn, race car driver, so I, I owe a lot to the belief he had in me. We had a great friendship at the beginning, kind of like a family thing. We were a small team, and um, it, it really uh, was a really, really great time in my life. This is something I've never been able to figure out. What is it that drives a guy like John Del Pena to do this? I, I can't imagine it's super profitable for him. Well, at the time, um, he had a he had backing from a lady named Peggy Haas. The team was actually called Lynx Racing. You know, she had money and she had the desire to have a racing team, so she gave him he gave him the option to basically pick a driver not based on money. So that gave him that option, and he obviously had a dream to turn it into something that it became an IndyCar. If you want to be a successful racing team, and if you look at a Penske or a Ganassi or whatever, you you need to be able to find the money and then find the driver. Unfortunately, a lot of times it's find the driver with the money, and that's not always the best driver. I'll, I'll give Dale Coyne as a perfect example. You know, for, he's been in IndyCar for more than any of us could ever dreamed. But back then, Dale Coyne was just a guy who just took the guy with the most money and just ran in the back, and he had ne- never had any success. Now you look at him, and he has a great team because he went out and finally found the money to find the driver, if that makes sense. So, you know, John had the, the vision – and and he had the backing too, but he had found the money, the backing, 
um, from the Food for Less people, which is Rouse and everything. And um, that kind of was his desire was to be a successful IndyCar owner. And you can't do that um, unless, you, A, you have the desire to do it, and B, you have you know the money behind you. And I just happen to be really in the right place at the right time. I, I You know, my story, I can lay it out you know, step by step, a lot of it's luck. I kind of came through, I came th- I got into IndyCar purely by the unconventional way to where I had to earn it. I never put any money into it. I didn't have the money to put into it. If I did, of course I would, but I didn't. And uh, John was uh, very, I'm very grateful for the fact that he, you know, saw me, who I was and talent wise and was able to go, you know, this is my guy. That's interesting. Uh, and it's really interesting what you said about, you know, having the money to go get the drivers you want instead of the other way around. Uh, Kerb and I debated uh, the virtues of Dalton Kellett for Foyt the last three years um, uh, the other day. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I kind of landed on the side of, yeah, you take that guy with the money, but do, are you really advancing the team? And No, you're not. You're yeah. not. It's just, it's just like any business. If you're smart in racing, and like I say, you look at a, a Ganassi or a Penske organization, they go and find the budget, and then they go and hire the best people. That's all it is. It's that simple. If you're relying on finding some dude with money, you know, very rarely this happens. It does happen, but more or less, the dudes with money don't have the talent because they probably didn't have to earn it. They were always giving it to them and they were just there. There was no like desperation, you know, to be better, to do the best you can. And the teams that do that are successful in in this sport long-term and, you know, the driver, I always kind of under, I never understood this part. This is the one part that drives me nuts about racing is, you know, the guy, the most important person in your team is the driver. The next guy would be probably maybe the engineer, you know, probably let's say, let's just make them even the team has no problem going and paying an engineer, but then they'll go and just ask a driver to bring money. It's like completely backwards. It's literally like having an NFL team and you know what? We're going to just going to go, we're going to make the quarterback pay to be on our team. Well, if you do that, you're going to get a crappy quarterback. And it just is always so backwards and I never understood that part. And it's, 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 it is what it is. I mean, racing is expensive and it costs money. I think sometimes a lot of teams, and this goes against what John was kind of goes, what he was thinking is, you know, a lot of teams just want to be in the gig, you know, they just want to join the party and they're not really passionate about winning. They're just passionate about being in the sport. So they don't look at it the right way. Well, they're not very successful and the successful ones do it the right way. It's a business. It is a business. It's just it's no different than running any company. You know, you go and find the best people and you pay them the right money and you get what you pay for. Uh, unfortunately in racing, it, it doesn't always work out that way. Every, every now and then to go on that, you do find the guy who not only has the talent, but also has the money. Well, that's a, like a gem that you can't find. So you do find those once in a while, but for the most part, if you look back in the history of racing in any sport, you can go to NASCAR, you can go to Formula One, you can go to IndyCar. The best drivers don't have the money. The best teams know how to how to how to make that work. 
Would it be true that there's two different kinds of drivers with money, though? I mean, you got the Dalton Kellett's with family money, who, as you say, probably didn't have to work hard for it throughout their career. You got the Justin Wilsons or the Marcus Erickson's or talented drivers that find somebody that kind of like the Haas lady you mentioned that helped you get started with Della Pena. You know, somebody that's interested in the sport and wants to sponsor who they think is a talented driver. Um, That'd be a different kind of driver with money, wouldn't it? Uh, absolutely. So, um, I think it's just the desire, you know, when you're in your younger ages, like take me, for instance, I had to make use with, you know, used tires. I mean, even take Michael Schumacher, if you know his story, it's that way, right? When he was growing up racing go-karts, they used to fish tires out of the, the, the garbage can and they went out there and, and made it happen. And that right. just kind of groomed you to be a better driver. Now, if you're a younger, and I'm not Mark knocking people, but if you're a younger driver and you just don't have that desperation of like, man, if I don't make this work, I got nothing. Like when I went to that test with Della Pena, I had nothing else. I was literally working at my dad's shop in a go-kart shop, just building four-stroke motors. I had, if that didn't work out, I had no backup plan. My backup plan was like, working at McDonald's or something. <laughs> and that desperation takes you from 95% level to that hundred percent level. Well, that 5% is the difference between everything. And if you're, you know, a wealthy kid, a lot of them just don't have that backup plan. And are they, so are they going to go out there and like really risk it all? Like all we're talking like all or nothing. That's what it takes thousands of people out there that can go out there and give you 95%. That's not good enough. Sometimes it just takes that desperation of literally, I have nothing else but this. I, you know, and I, I can go back and I can imagine it right now. We're talking a long time ago, almost 30 years ago. It was 1993. I remember going to, to I've never been to Sears Point ever in my life and turn 10, which is the kink that goes you know, the last fast yep. corner in the back, nobody had ever gone flat out through there in Atlanta car. I just said, F it. I'm doing it. I don't care if I wad this thing up. It's not my, I don't have, they're not going to, I don't, I can't pay for it. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> and I just did it. Yeah. Now somebody that has, you know, a little bit of like, well, if I don't do this, I can always run my dad's business or whatever. You know, I'm not, like I said, this is not knocking people down, but it's just a matter of having that little extra desperation that it's it's we're talking you know and Dalton Kellett I'm I agree with you he's a good driver but if it was like man this is like make or break what does that do to your your mentality out there and what you're you're willing to do that's the difference yeah so 1995 you win the Toyota Atlantic series which was a pretty yep. stout series, if I recall at that time, you know, I mean, it was uh, very good. I think uh, Carpentier was in it that year with you, you know, not to cut you off, but like, so I'll give you a backstory on that. So in 94, at the end of 94, I finished second to David Empreyham. I missed it by, I don't know, like five points or something like that. Um, and he won the championship. I got with the year and whatever. Um, but, but then John and Peggy had us falling out. Like, I think he had an idea of what to do and she had an idea what to do. And he's like, we're not doing that. You know, he had already solidified sponsorship for 95. 
she went and did her own thing, you know, so then it be, then it be, so in 94, it was Lynx racing in 95, it was John Della Pena racing. She formed her own team called Lynx racing and she hired Patrick Carpentier on that point. And so huh. he came in as this real hot shoe and there was a real hatred there. <laughs> real really? hatred between myself and with John and myself. And it didn't, it didn't end happily. The split didn't happen happily. Right. And so there's this real desire in 95 to just completely destroy him. Which, <laughs> and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm a very honest guy. I, I, I'm, I'll tell you exactly what I think. I wanted to crash him out all the time. I like had no, I had no problem putting him in the fence. Um, now, if he ever hears this, I would consider him a re- we became really good friends after this, you know, he, it wasn't his fault. He was in that situation. If you know what I mean? It was just like, that was the guy we wanted to destroy. Um, and he was good that year. He was a rookie, but he really wasn't my main competitor. Uh, my main competitor was really, um, David Ampringham, um, who had won the championship. He won the, I think he won the championship 93, 94. I don't know. I don't know. But, um, I know he won in 94, and I think uh, Villeneuve won in 93, I think. Yeah, Shark you're right, it. you're right. And yeah. he was there that year, so he was in that, you know, so he wasn't a rookie. You know, in, in 95, he was our main guy um, to be. And it really, it, him and I came down to, all the way down to Laguna Stega to the last race. Um, and I, I think I beat him by seven points. I think the year before, he beat me by five. So it was like, but Patrick was there. It was very, and you know, you're only as good as your competition. If you go out there and win every race, you're not going to be better. So you know, having those battles and that sense of desperation, like I talked about, like for me, like I needed to win that championship. Like if I wanted to go to IndyCar, second was not going to cut it. And that's what the cream rises to the top. That's when you, you send yourself that little extra bit. Right. I read somewhere, I think maybe it was an article about Della Pena, but um, in that article, they claimed that John was ready to move up to cart in 95 and you said no. You think you you thought you needed another year in Toyota Atlantic? Is that right? Yeah, I I think the opportunity was there, but I think it wasn't just me. But our team itself was not ready. Like we could have moved up, but we would have been nowhere. I I personally was not ready. You know, it's 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 not the physical part. It's you know mentally being in those battles and stuff. So um, I think we did the right thing. Plus, as you know in 96 is when the split happened. Right. Sure. As bad as the split was for the sport, it was great for us because as a small team, we were just a small team. We were based in San Jose, just a few people. So we went and ran the IRL with cheaper equipment, you know, with 95 Reynards. And it was just a cheaper way for us to jump into the sport and be at the, at the high stage. Right. I finished third at Indy, I won the Las Vegas race and kind of get that momentum built to move into car. Our goal was always to move into car was not to be in the IRL. The IRL just gave us an Avenue to kind of get our feet wet without overdoing it. If that makes sense. So it really kind of gave us a way to kind of half jump in because the rate, the series was only five races, I think. So, um, we didn't have to like have this $10 million budget. We could do it. And it gave our chance for our sponsors, which were new. They weren't in IndyCar. 
and to kind of jump in at kind of a little bit lower financial level. And, um, you know what, we went out there and crushed it. You know, I just, we really finishing third at Indy and winning Las Vegas and qualifying the pole at, at New Hampshire gave our sponsors that appetite for more. And it really worked out. So then, you know, we, they were able to go, yeah, we're going to send, we're going to spend $8 million or whatever. And we're going to go to cart. I don't know if it would have worked out so well, if it would have just jumped right into cart and just gotten destroyed right at the beginning. And, you know, maybe the, it would have been a one and done type of thing. Funny how things work out. When I really look at, back at the whole timeline of thing, it really kind of just worked out, you know, really good for us, for me. All right, Curb, we're going to pause it there. Uh, I think, you know, I love what Richie's having to say, and I don't want to condense it down to into our normal tight 20. So I think we're going to do a two-parter here, but uh, um, so far, so good. What do you think? Yeah, very interesting story. Um, you know, the ups and the downs and and uh, all the different things he's had to go through and the kind of story you don't always hear because the kind of guys with – the bad breaks that Richie got to just kind of disappear and don't get hurt from a lot. So, um, you know, I remember when he was doing well and uh, he was a good upcoming young driver. And so I'm glad to hear the rest of his story. For sure. Okay. Uh, so without further ado, um, the end of part one, and we will start on part two here.